We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to Hollywood Remixed, a topical podcast about inclusion and representation in culture and entertainment. I'm Rebecca Sun, Senior Editor of Diversity and Inclusion at The Hollywood Reporter. If you're new to the show, here at Hollywood Remixed, each episode is dedicated to a single theme, a type of character, storyline, or identity that has traditionally been underrepresented or misrepresented in mainstream culture. This week, we'll be learning about non-binary gender identity and exploring how film and TV represent characters that are neither exclusively male or female. This episode is inspired by Billions star Asia Kate Dillon, who will join us in the latter half of the show to talk about their groundbreaking character, how they approach their roles, and why acting awards categories should be gender neutral. I'm also so thankful to my colleague, THR Associate Editor Abby White, for coming on as this week's guest expert to share what non-binary representation has meant to their own identity formation and to teach me about the genres that, perhaps surprisingly, have done pretty well with gender non-conforming inclusion. Abby, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast today. It's nice to actually meet a colleague face-to-face over the internet, finally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I've been here for a couple months and this is our first meeting, so I'm very excited about that. You are uh, so gracious to lend your expertise to this topic. And I figured, you know, particularly when it comes to understanding gender identities uh, on the spectrum, that we kind of almost, I personally need some um, table setting just for the education. Let's, let's talk a little bit about definitions so that we can, uh, so that all of us can understand the parameters of what we'll be talking about today. You know, this episode is about non-binary identity. I could use a little help in understanding, is that the same as, or, or different from, or similar to gender non-conforming or gender queer or gender fluid? So I think that, non-binary, the first thing that we should know about non-binary is that non-binary is not actually a gender. Um, mm-hmm. It's an umbrella term. Um, and it sort of describes anybody who may ex- may have a gender that doesn't really exclusively fall into male or female, cisgender very specifically, um, and, and who may sort of identify somewhere in between that or beyond that. Um, I think that most of the time when we think about gender, we do think about it as a binary, right? And that's sort Mm -hmm. of what the term non-binary is about. Gender is more like a sphere that you can sort of walk into and it sort of exists fluidly. And so I think that really depending on who you're talking to will sort of influence how they define non-binary and also how they describe their own gender. I think that I have gender fluid friends who say that they're gender fluid, but also just because some people aren't really familiar with that very specific term, they'll just choose non-binary. Some friends are like, nope, it's not the same. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's always safest to use it as an umbrella term and then sort of very specifically ask somebody, what is your gender? I want to make sure that I get that right. 
That's great. That's super helpful. And so uh, knowing that there's there's sort of a, I like sphere. I've been using the word spectrum, but I think sphere is sort of even more encompassing of, of uh, the, all the different sort of uh, identities that can fall within it. Let's distinguish that today's conversation, um, you know, we're going to be speaking of the identities that fall under the non-binary identity, but um, it's different from transgender. I think that there's been a lot of conversations that specifically talk about transgender representation in Hollywood, and this is going to be everything else, not that. Yeah. Um, I, I always sort of say this because I, I do think that gender is a little more fluid um, for a lot of people, um, but you can be a trans person who is also non-binary or a non-binary person who is trans, but um, being trans does not inherently make you non-binary and being non-binary does not inherently make you trans. My relationship as, as a non-binary person to my gender um, which I really don't even have like a, like a very specific label for. I don't consider myself gender fluid. I still think um, that might be a good <laughs> label if, if you're trying to sort of describe it to somebody. But even for myself, I don't feel like I have sort of transitioned from one gender to another. I sort of describe my gender identity as always sort of being this way. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no sort of... Um, pathway. Um, it was just more or less trying to figure it out. And, and now mind you, that is not always how trans people describe uh, being trans or, or encapsulating the trans identity. Um, but I, I certainly know that like my gender is not something Mm. and that's Mm -hmm. sort of what makes it clear for me. And I think, um, there can be trans people who are, are very succinct and clear about what their gender is. And that can be very different than non-binary folks. That's helpful. Yeah, because I almost feel like as as a cisgender person, in other words, somebody who identifies as the gender they were assigned at birth, if I'm if I'm defining that correctly, um, it has been in some ways, sometimes I think it's easier for me to understand, like to wrap my head around, Okay, uh, a, a transgender person because who still exists along the gender binary. Right. And so because then you're like, okay, well, I understand because so much of our world is basically coded through this very firm gender binary. And I I realized that once I tried to start learning more about like non-binary is like, wow, we are so firmly sort of uh, like fundamentally wedded to this this idea of this or that male or female that, um, you know, that's why today I really wanted to focus on like when you are neither this nor that. Yeah. That I mean, is it's, the port- representation we're talking about today. It's definitely interesting when you start to think about how gendered, like mm-hmm. aggressively gendered our culture mm-hmm. is. Um, watching a lot of like kids cartoons where I think there's increasing conversation about um, the impact of gender stereotypes and what that sort of reinforces in cisgender and non-binary and trans kids and, and, and maybe how damaging that can be when you watch some of these cartoons. It's like, it's not even just like blue is for boy and pink is for girl. It's like a car has to have eyelashes, which is like a weird thing. Um, because it's assuming one that men and boys don't have eyelashes. Um, and also that like a car, which is an inanimate object would need to have 
a gender explicitly. Um, and it's, and that's really just something that's kind of imposed children. I've spoken to sort of child development experts about ch children's media and gender. And, um, that binary in kids isn't inherent, it's learned. Um, mm -hmm. And it mm -hmm. can be really reinforced by our media. And then we just take that with us as we get older. And so it's really interesting to see, like, I think some cool stuff that's happening in animation and, and very specifically in children's animation that's sort of breaking that down and, and sort of maybe arguably at the forefront of our conversations about non-binary identity and gender non-conforming identities. Let's go ahead and, and jump in then to, since you brought up animation, uh, you were speaking before we started recording about how that genre, which again, we'll say that animation is closely aligned with children's content. It's, it's not a perfect circle there, you know, there's animation that's not for kids and there's obviously kids contact that's live action. But, uh, tell me a little bit about like sort of animations, um, role or presence, you know, when it comes to gender presentation and things like that? I think that animation, because it is such a fluid medium, because it doesn't have to sort of ascribe to the physical realism mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. exists in live action film and TV, um, you can be super expressive. And I think there's a long history of people exploring gender intentionally and unintentionally through animation. Um, two things I'll sort of bring up. One is unintentional. Uh, the other may be unintentional, but it definitely resonated with me, particularly due to the animation style. But um, I think about sort of Bugs Bunny. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm not sure if folks are familiar sort of with the codes that were around um, the sort of anti-gay, anti-LGBTQ codes that were around in television. But, you know, there were very specific restrictions around, you know, what kind of characters that we could see. And and if we did see certain characters, the way in which we could see them. And um, one thing that I found really, really interesting about animation is that some folks would sort of skirt these rules because these rules are very human-based. Like, you could have uh, an animated cartoon and, like, you couldn't have two men kissing, but, like, you could have a rabbit kiss a man and like mm -hmm. that wouldn't be considered like this, you know, alarming thing that immediately needed to be cut or censored. Um, and so you see a character like Bugs Bunny who dresses in drag. And obviously that is meant as a form of comedy, but I think, I believe even RuPaul was like Bugs Bunny <laughs> had an influence on sort of my own understanding of my gender and my presentation and my interest in drag. And so like, you have these sort of transgressive representations that come out of whether it's a, a bigotry or a sort of a thoughtlessness or a, a place of humor. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't count Bugs Bunny as non-binary. That I wouldn't mm -hmm. say that. I mm -hmm. would say that um, elements of Bugs Bunny's representation have gender nonconformity, and that can apply to anybody, not just non-binary people. Another one that I think about a lot, and and I've been thinking about increasingly in the past couple of years, is Adventure Time. It's basically about a boy and his talking dog who go into this like land of foo. It's like this ad adventure place. And there's like all these different sorts of weird characters. And there's like people made out of candy and lemons. And there's actually a lot of gender nonconformity and gender swapping in this space. There's a, there's a tiny little calculator known as BMO um, who is genderless because why wouldn't a tiny little calculator be genderless? 
they use multiple pronouns. They are referred to as boy and girl and all kinds of things. And it's really sort of this fluid space for this character. But I remember sort of my first introduction to Adventure Time was actually watching a clip of Lumpy Space Princess, who is just this sort of deep-voiced, giant pink blobby, fluffy creature who has a lot of attitude and just doesn't really take anybody's crap. Um, and she's kind of sturdy. That's kind of what I, I she's fluffy and, and puffy, but she's sturdy. And I remember just, she's, she's a funny character, but I remember immediately just like latching on. And I was like, why am I doing, like, why am I so connected to this character? And then I sort of just realized that this character is upending gender norms. You know, having a deep voice, but also being pink being feminine and masculine at the same time, um, having a body shape that sort of defies what women or men are supposed to look like uh, was really, really appealing to me. And I, and I was like, oh, this wild, funny, sturdy, pink character is sort of embodying the ways that I think my gender represents um which is it's not a binary it's not clearly defined there are things that overlap so i think that like in that sense there's there's a really really big opportunity in animation um to sort of go beyond what we understand in gender and i think animation has actually sort of been at the forefront of this how intentional do you like i i think it's I mean, probably safe to assume that like the Looney Tunes, you know, Chuck Jones and those creators weren't necessarily uh, conscious or fully cognizant of, of that. But these latter day animators, you know, this current generation, uh, you mentioned Adventure Time. I think there's another one that comes up a lot uh, in this subject, which is Steven Universe, uh, created by, I believe, Rebecca Sugar. Um, so are, are these sort of more current animated series more intentional in, in terms of on the parts of their creators? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Steven Universe is the whole idea behind Steven Universe is an upending of, of gender expectation. Um, Steven is a gender non-conforming boy um, and his family are basically these feminine, non-binary, non-gendered aliens who are like super warriors. They essentially do the thing that, you know, we often see men, male heroes mm -hmm. in cartoons do. Meanwhile, Steven and, and Rebecca has talked about this. They've talked about this rather extensively, but Steven is, is a gender non-conforming boy who's a little softer around the edges. And, um, you know, pink is sort of his associated color and his uh, sort of I would say weapons and his powers are defensive things. These are things that are normally given to girls when we do, you know, sort of superhero or sort of fight fantasy stories. Um, and this is sort of laced in, in very conscious, uh, purposeful ways throughout the entire series. And I think that sort of Steven Universe gets talked about a lot. And I think that's one of the reasons why, but I'd also just sort of argue that, there are a lot of very recent newer cartoons, particularly children's cartoons, that have followed in Steven Universe's footsteps and are, you know, very consciously sort of creating. One of my favorites is actually Summer Camp Island. Um, there is a whole storyline about two aliens. They're non-binary aliens. They go by they, them. They're little. They're like super cute. And, and their storyline is basically just about how one sort of 
helps the other feel better, um, but in the process sort of confesses their love for the other one. And um, there's a sweet, beautiful song. Um, but these two characters are just, they're just adorable aliens and they're not gendered. Um, and the pronouns are very purposeful. And I think that's a really sort of based off of sort of the experts that I've talked to a really age appropriate way um, mm -hmm. to reach kids that they can understand. I think about the characters in Danger and Eggs, which was an Amazon series, Craig of the Creek, which has, I think, the one of the highest numbers of non-binary characters outside of Steven Universe, which is it just blows everybody away because like every sort of gem in that is non-binary. But um, there are shows now that I think are really kind of stepping up and a lot of creators who are really careful and mindful and it's really meaningful for them because, you know, these were things they didn't have when they were kids. Mm hmm. Yeah, and particularly when you say that these aren't these these aren't like adult swim cartoons that come on at like three a.m. for grownups to watch, but these, these this is children's this is children's programming and um and and is age appropriate while you know in terms of um, all the aspects in which that matters. There's another genre in which uh, I think this sort of gender play is often seen or is more frequently seen than other genres, and that's science fiction, uh, fantasy. We talked a little bit about Star Trek, but feel free to bring in other examples if, if they exist. But tell me a little bit about how they have sort of treated the subject of gender expression. I think Star Trek has always sort of been about exploration and, and asking questions about identity and community and where we belong and how we belong. Um, and so I think that while there are characters and storylines in Star Trek that have always sort of been about this exploration of gender nonconformity. I think it, I would, I would say that it isn't really until more recently as also as sort of language has evolved and we've really like solidified our, our concept of non-binary as a word to describe people. Um, it really isn't sort of until sort of the later works discovery, um, that we've had sort of explicitly uh, crafted non-binary characters. Mm -hmm. That's not to say that characters before who had storylines about changing genders or being sort of forced to identify as a gender that they don't identify with aren't a part of this conversation. Um, I very much do think they are, and I think that's part of the larger history around non-binary representation in film and television. I think so much about like the concept of like the bearded lady, which has been around forever. I think about the concept of like angels and demons. These are, you know, angels and demons are not humans. They're celestial beings. Um, and so why would they sort of conform to that? I mean, Good Omens is a really great example. Um, Neil Gaiman basically just said, my angels and demons, non-binary. They don't ascribe to human gender identity. And I think like in that same space of, you know, like the bearded woman, um, there is a gender non-conformity there, right? A woman can have a beard and be a woman, but mm -hmm. someone can have a beard and also be non-binary. Mm -hmm. Someone can have a beard and be trans. And I think that there's, there are characters, while their portrayals have may, may not have always been respectful, intentional, progressive. I think that this idea that we do not always 
live within two spaces on a gender line mm-hmm. has been persistent. And I think that writers in particular, TV and film writers, have leaned on sci-fi because, you know, I think it's a lot easier to sell the idea that your alien doesn't have a gender, right? Like if you're pitching a show to an executive and an executive has a very rigid gender binary and doesn't really understand what you're saying, um, you could just be like, well, they're not human. <laughs> so why would they have that binary? And and that is sort of an easier way to get that through and have that conversation. Um, but I also just think that sci-fi and fantasy are about places of imagination and exploration. And, and in, in the same way that animation is sort of this place where we do not have to exist within the limits of, of humanness. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an incredible place to explore lots of things, things that we want to see, things that we want to be. Um, and so it makes a lot of logical sense to me that that would be a genre that people lean into. And it makes, I think, a lot of sense that Star Trek, uh, based off of its sort of founding principles that it has carried through its entire franchise over decades, it would make a lot of sense that it would sort of be progressive in conversations about gender. Yeah, and, and that really does emerge um, in so many different topics, uh, you know, when, when we've been talking about inclusion is that, you know, these are sandboxes with that um, are in some ways, you know, to use this, you know, overworn phrase uh, in a genuine way, a safe space to be able to sort of explore some of these uh some of these stories or identities that I think that mainstream culture wasn't ready for yet. This is why. So a lot of like, when we were talking about the history of like pioneering representations of inclusion, it all, a lot of times it starts with sci-fi or it has started with um, genre um, and with Star Trek. Uh, I, I just, you mentioned just so people know um, when you talked about the first official representation of a non-binary character, that is Star Trek discovery. And that was just this last, uh, this past third season, an actor named Blue Del Barrio, who I believe is non-binary themselves, plays a non-binary character, a, 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 a character who is explicitly identified as non-binary. Prior to that, uh, there have been various examples, I think, through the years. Uh, my research yielded one, one such example is uh, way back in 1992. So this is 30 years ago. Uh, there was an episode of The Next Generation where, you know, the Enterprise visits a planet where um, everybody uh, on that planet is where gen- the gender binary is prohibited. And, and so there's a character who, like, kind of comes out to Riker and says that they are actually a she, but then spoiler alert for a 30 year old episode. Okay. Uh, then their, their, their government, their, their planet, the race uh, forces, uh, forces her to undergo like a conversion therapy of sorts to go back to a they, uh, which is really interesting. I was reading some of the commentary at the time and I don't know, Abby, if, if that, that, that is way too young of a reference, uh, way too old of a reference for you. But um, I was reading back through this in the commentary at the time, Roddenberry, you know, meant it as a, as a LGBT allegory, right. To, to kind of criticize conversion therapy and to kind of criticize forcing somebody to be, you know, some, something that they don't naturally feel. But at the same time, it's weird to like, it's weird to wrap around cause they used like, cause the world is exactly the opposite. 
right? <laughs> um, <laughs> where we have a gender gender binary enforced society, and and you know the conversion therapy is meant to to enforce that binary rather than the other way around. So I don't know if you you had heard of that or uh, you know. Yeah, I had. I think the thing about Star Trek. So there's also a famous Star Trek episode that deals with race, where it's like there's a whole race of people, and like half of half of them have like white on one side of the face and black on the other. And then for the other half of the race, it's like reversed. Well, and like, that's a conversation <laughs> about racism. Right. And it feels <laughs> a little weird. Right. And I think it, it, to some people it feels a little dated, but I think that is really kind of the conversation that we're having about the history of non-binary identity. I think it, 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 some of it feels a little weird. Some of it feels a little dated. I'm not surprised that like this, this conversation about um, conversion therapy is being spoken through a gender lens. I, I, it's not that we weren't having conversations about gender. We've always been having conversations about gender. As people say, non-binary people have always existed. Trans people have always existed. So these conversations have happened. But I think the degree to which people understood what their conversation was saying um, and sort of personally being informed has changed. And I think our media is really representative of how that conversation has changed. I, not to sort of hark on animation, but you mentioned adult animation. Adult animation has had gay, trans, non-binary characters. Um, the level of sensitivity with which those characters have been afforded, the level of humanity that they have been afforded is not anywhere near what it is now. Um, they spend a lot of times being the butts of jokes. And I would argue that live action non-binary and trans characters have also done this. Um, gender nonconformity has traditionally been a means of exploring <laughs> horror narratives. Like what, what if I, you know, had to be in a place where like my gender didn't align with something that somebody could immediately clock, right? Like what is that scary space? Um, there's also just sort of the sci-fi of just like gender nonconformity, non-binary people aren't human. You know, I mean, obviously sci-fi is a place where you can explore, but when it's the only place that you explore gender outside of cisgender identity, <laughs> you literally dehumanize it, right? Um, I think comedy is also a space where gender, and this doesn't just apply to non-binary people. I think this applies to women, even men, honestly, in, in the sense of what the tropes that cisgender men are allowed to occupy. Um, Talking about gender and gender representation is is seen as a joke and it's not always treated with sensitivity. And and I think that you can have non-binary people in comedy. Right. I think that they can be in literally anything. Um, I think it's the intent and the knowledge that goes into that and the level of sensitivity that actually ultimately matters. And, and the fact of the matter is where you're talking about Star Trek, you're talking about anything else. Sensitivity has changed over time. Knowledge has changed over time. So there are going to be narratives that at the time were incredibly progressive that now are just like, yikes, let's not do that again. <laughs> An another recurring theme in the, in the entire, co the larger conversation about inclusion. And then that's the, that's, and and part of it is just I think um, I don't I wonder if it is an inevitable circumstance of evolving understanding, you know, and sort of like a lot of um, 
I don't know. I, I don't want to give an excuse and, and say like trial and error, you know, but you do see a lot of errors on the, on the road to, um, on the sort of the interminable road of progress. Um, there are certainly a lot of errors. Yeah. I, that's sort of the weight of the first, right? Mm -hmm. Representation has always sort of had this, this weight of the first. The first Black person to do anything is both going to be celebrated and also scorned, right? Because they didn't do it the right way and it wasn't enough for everybody, right? But they're also the first person to be in the room. And that applies, I think, to representation on television and film. I am actually glad that people try. I don't necessarily like when the attempt is offensive, but to get something right, you also need to know what you got wrong, right? And I think that's actually part of the key to LGBTQ representation, sort of the, the storied history of LGBTQ representation and definitely non-binary representation is people try this with good intentions, maybe not, but they try it, and then people respond. And based off of that response, we get a new crop of representation and each new step opens another door and we get sort of closer to this thing that I think we all want, which is just a diversity of representation. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think that non-binary identity is really kind of behind other LGBTQ communities on screen. I, you know, I think we've long had queer villains, but we're getting queer heroes. You know, we're getting queer love interests. Um, we're getting smart queer people and strong queer people. Um, and I think that non-binary identity, because it is still sort of fresh for much of the industry, we're still getting very specific visions of what it means to be non-binary and where that person can be situated in a narrative. A lot of times when we talk, and I think that, especially when we're talking about like, LGBTQ portrayals, it often starts with like whiteness, you know, is kind of like level one. And then after you get a few more representations, you get, you start to see depictions of people of color and other sort of intersectional uh, portrayals. But tell me a little bit about the existence of uh, non-binary representations of color. What do we, what do we have in the landscape right now? I think, I mean, I wouldn't say it looks like cisgender racial representation at all. I think that's, that's <laughs> which is it, already lopsided. To begin yeah, with. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. My point, um, which sort of tells you just how little there yeah. is. Um, but I do think that there it, it's happening. I, I, interviewed a voice actor for a piece. Um, he is a gay man of color. And one of the things that he said really stuck out to me. And that was that, you know, queer white people get to be queer. And queer people of color are people of color first. Which means that society looks at our race before it looks at our sexuality. And I think the same thing applies when we're talking about gender. And so I think a lot of our gender portrayals, and I, I mean, this applies also to disability representation and also sort of just religious representation, Christianity, Catholicism, those are highly represented, usually by white characters. When we think about religious groups that are less white, 
we see less representation. And when it comes to sort of non-binary identities, I think that also just holds true. White non-binary actors, white characters, really, and that's really what this is. It's not even about non-binary white actors. It's really about white characters getting through the door first. You know, if a white character can do this, then we'll roll the dice on a character of color. But I also don't think that that means that, like, we don't have characters of color that are non-binary. I think there's a character, Milo, who's, who's Black, um, at Danger and Eggs, a gender. Um, we also have Zavin, who is an alien, <laughs> but is a non-binary alien in Marvel's Runaways. Um, we have one character that I really, really love, Bobby Yang from Rutherford Falls. And I love that character so, so much because it's, I think one of the things that I really struggle with in terms of the, w the way that non-binary is allowed to exist on screen is that most people chalk non-binary up to androgynous. And non-binary people aren't androgynous, but also androgyny has historically been aligned with masculinity. Like when you go to fast fashion stores and you're like, I'm going to get this gender neutral piece of clothing. It's like not a skirt, mm -hmm. you know, it's a jean jacket. It's like tomboy clothes. Yes, exactly. It is aligned with masculinity. And the thing about being non-binary is you can be hairy and wear lipstick. And like that is non-binary. Like, and you don't have to ascribe to this or that. Um, and I think that in terms of Bobby, Bobby so much, as soon as I saw Bobby on screen, I was just like, this is so much of what I have been asking for in the sense that this is a character that, that people clearly are not trying to force one way or another. They are not trying to incorporate a character who still sort of ascribes to a gender that people want to sort of force on them. It, it just felt kind of like, oh, this is a, this is a good step. And that is a character of color in a show featuring indigenous people uh, in a way that indigenous people haven't really been represented before. And so again, it's sort of that, like once somebody else opens that door, the door gets to open for other people. Um, and sometimes it's, you're just at the last door, <laughs> honestly, which sounds terrible. And it is incredibly, I think sort of, unfair and kind of limiting because it means that you know our stories are limited in and of themselves but I do think that people of color are increasingly being represented um I would not obviously would not say to the same degree that white characters are I would still argue that most non-binary representation is white but there's progress um and there's good progress yeah and I'm glad you mentioned Rutherford Falls because that kind of brings uh, into w something you talked earlier about genre is that um, we're finally, are, do you feel like we're finally starting to see kind of like real world and more grounded representations where you don't need to Trojan horse it into an allegory of a, like a non-humanoid and say, this is an alien, this is a like a soda cup, you know, or a car, but non-binary people can exist in like, practical reality in, in seeing these characters um, in more yeah, realistic shows. Absolutely. I think about Billions. I think about Vita. Um, 
it is definitely happening and happening more and more often. And I think that's a, a really big win, not to sort of redirect to uh, sort of the trans conversation, but I think Pose as a show actually did a really incredible thing um, by centering trans people, making them leads, showing that they could be like girlfriends, that they could be like friends, they could be sex in the city. And that I think creates sort of a ripple effect for other gender identities, right? It's, you know, we don't have to sort of confine you in the same way that we sort of always have. Um, and that also means that we can put you in dramas and we can put you in comedies. I also think this conversation isn't just about who we're seeing on screen or larger cultural narratives changing. I think it's also very much about who is writing, like who is in the room? Are we at a place where we accept and welcome trans writers, non-binary writers? Do they get to have a voice? Can they have conversations about gender nonconformity and change maybe not only how we think about a character or write a character that it is non-binary, but also cisgender characters. You know, it's, it's really, I think one of the greatest sort of gifts of trans and non-binary representation on, on TV, less so in film, unfortunately. Um, but one of the greatest gifts is really that by featuring people who do not exist inside the binary, it opens the door for cisgender people to sort of break down their own toxic gender stereotypes and sort of reimagine characters um, and people and, and what a man would look and act like and what a woman would look and act like and what kinds of roles they can get. Um, and I think that's really powerful. That's a really powerful part of non-binary representation in media. It was most certainly a powerful part of my own journey with my gender, sort of realizing that I did not have to be this thing because of the gender that was sort of assigned to me and, and all of the baggage that comes with that. Um, your characters get to do different things and they get to be different people. Um, and that's because they're not conforming to that binary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, um, I, I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I was having a conversation with a friend recently and we're both cisgender but kind of realizing a lot of how helpful it is to to kind of like decouple these gendered characteristics from like you know and particularly living in a patriarchy <laughs> where it's really useful to decouple like why does this trait get to be assigned as masculine you know why does this trait you know uh why do why do men not uh are, why are they not allowed to access access this characteristic just because it's assigned as a coded as feminine um i think it really could go a long way towards de dismantling a lot of the toxicity um that we have uh you know, the toxic masculinity as well as um, some of the limits that that um, that women have uh, in having this conversation. The last big concept I wanted to talk about was this difference between characters and, and actors, you know, because we are, I think, slowly um, starting to see a few high profile celebrities come out as non-binary. You know, uh, Demi Lovato, I think, was the most recent um, 
really big announcement. And they are a musician, as are other uh, non many of the most famous non-binary celebrities, I think, happen like coincidentally happen to be more musicians rather than actors, like Sam Smith, and I think Janelle Monet has identified as non-binary or gender non-conforming. I'm curious, though, whether or not we will see a trickle-down effect to non-binary performers getting to play non-binary actors or whether they will still, you know, their roles will be along binary lines. Um, there is, I wanted to give a little shout out to, there's a, um, an actor, an Emmy nominated actor who wrote a guest column for us uh, in July, Carl Clemens Hopkins. They are on Hacks and they uh, just received an Emmy nomination for the show. And has come out as, as non-binary. I think their character identifies as a man, Marcus, on the show. So are we going to see some sort of distance? And is it appropriate, right? Like, this is so, you know, usually I think we're at a place in the in general understanding in Hollywood where your actor should come from a background that matches the character, especially when you're talking about portraying a character that comes from a marginalized background. But where, where, what is the line of appropriateness when it comes to gender nonconforming performers? I think this is really difficult because to have a line of appropriateness, you have to have roles. Yes. Um, right? So it, it, I think, one, there's a shortage of roles. And that is always part of, that's something that sort of can't be ignored in the conversation about who gets to play who. I think that, you know, one interesting thing, and, and I'm not an actor, I think asking a non-binary actor about this and about their own experience is very interesting. But I have I've talked to some voice actors, some actors, and, you know, they're sort of still existing in the binary, right? The roles that are offered to them are gendered. Are in the binary. Very, right. Yeah, are specifically gendered as mm -hmm. male or female, man or woman. And so, like, those are the opportunities that are available to them. Um, and so that's what they can go out for. That's really all that they have. But I also think what's sort of interesting, and I think this sort of circles in about sort of trans representation, is that I think Hollywood has treated trans people historically like costumes. <laughs> and I think yes. this sort of kind of applies to lots of marginalized totally. groups. Like, like doing blackface was a big no-no a, a lot longer than doing face. Yes, right. Exactly. You know, mm -hmm. and so some folks have gotten the door to be able to play themselves opened sooner. I think the interesting thing about like trans versus non-binary representation is that trans representation has sort of arguably existed more specifically and intentionally than non-binary representation. And so I think like there were roles for cisgender actors to snag. And, and because they were treated like characters instead of like people, trans actors were not considered. Um, and they really kind of culturally, societally, weren't even allowed to be trans, right? So how would you find a trans actor when, you know, your entire government is like, you shouldn't exist? And so I think what's interesting following that and sort of the gates that have opened for trans actors is that trans actors were still kind of operating in that binary of like what Hollywood thought a man and a woman really was. But the thing about non-binary identity is that you know that you're neither of those, right? And so it enters this really interesting space where you're almost 
uh, I, I kind of consider it like American Girl dolling, where you're picking pieces and parts and putting that character together instead of just saying white male, 30 to 50s, father, you know, that, something that anybody can sort of slide into. These are characters that come with very, very specific personality traits, physical traits. And then even if they're not coming with that, you're getting, if you're getting non-binary actors, sort of your vision of that character, I think changes a little more because their identity can be so different from one person to the next. And that's not to say like all white men are the same, but I think that because non-binary is this massive umbrella, what that looks like, what that sounds like, how you write that is so distinctively different and specific that I think that there may be, when more roles become available, more opportunities for non-binary actors to get roles. And obviously, clearly benefiting from all of the work that, <laughs> that every other marginalized group has put forth to get these conversations in the rooms that matter and to have people listen and be sensitive to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to, to lay the infrastructure, so to speak, for, for the, the, the framework for understanding that these are experiences that exist outside of the, the personal framework for, for the decision makers. Uh, and also getting more creators who are non-binary. I'm very curious to see what, for example, Joey Soloway, who I think is probably the most prominent non-binary creator in Hollywood, um, you know, they made Transparent and, and were, a, you know, sort of very respected indie film director um, prior. Um, what they will do now that they have come out as, as specifically as non-binary um, and, and how to advocate, right, for, for more voices in, in that space. So the, my last, the last two questions we ask every guest the first one is Hollywood Remixed, which is, is there a, a prior attempt, since we were talking about attempts, an attempt at uh, non-binary representation that you would request a do-over for? And if so, how should they do it over? And maybe it's just like, don't cast a cisgender actor in this world, <laughs> or don't portray it in this way. Okay. <laughs> Gonna wade into this. Uh, I'd like to talk about SNL's Pat. <laughs> mm, yes. Um, because I grew up, my mom was an SNL hound. My mom was a pop culture hound. All of my pop culture interests really sort of derive from her and my relationship with her. But um, I watched SNL religiously. I know all of those characters. And I remember Pat very clearly. And, and Pat what even I got find, their own movie, didn't they? Yes. <laughs> it's Pat. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I think Pat is a really, really interesting look, particularly for me, because when Pat was popular, I was young. And I think that that age actually does matter in relationship to Pat. I think Pat was a joke. Pat was the Pat's gender was literally the running joke. They made multiple skits. They made a movie out of the fact that people could not identify who Pat was. And I remember watching it as like a little kid and like this is so wild when I just sort of think about my own gender journey, but not really needing to ascribe a gender to Pat, um, which I mean, 
I think there are a lot of valid, valid criticisms of that character um, and sort of what it sort of laid the groundwork for and how it sort of embodied a lot of, I think, harmful um, treatment of gender and non-binary identities in, in Hollywood. But I also think for people like me, Pat was a door to sort of asking ourselves who we are and really starting to get comfortable, even if no one else around us was, get comfortable personally with not being in that binary, maybe not being the gender that somebody said we were, and maybe not even being the other gender option that somebody said we could be. Um, but I do think that if I was going to redo one, because I did that, I think there's probably, I would really love to sort of see Pat in 2021. <laughs> like, what would that narrative actually look like? Um, and how would we talk about Pat's gender and Pat's partners differently versus when we did it then? Um, because I do, like I said, I do think, you know, this running gag of not, of somebody not ascribing to somebody else's gender expectations is like, problematic. It's not really your business because it's not your gender, right? But there's also just something sort of freeing about seeing a character who walks around and is comfortable with who they are and doesn't really, I mean, because the, the trick of Pat was like, Pat just was like clueless. Yeah. <laughs> like everybody else around Pat was obsessed with Pat's gender, right? which is... Yes. I mean, honestly, if you talk to trans people, if you talk to non-binary people, that's kind of what the world is like now. People are just very obsessed with like figuring out who we are mm -hmm. all the time. But like Pat was just like minding their business and doing right. their own thing and was comfortable with who they were and their partners. And like, that seems really kind of radical tucked within that very problematic representation, right? That is so that is a perfect example because you're right it is it's, it's sort of this radical premise that was I think pr probably problematically intended because you know and, and this is like a whole this is the whole thing about comedy right is like what who is the butt of the joke and what's the intention and what were you trying to do and I, I think they were intending it pat to be the butt of the joke but i would also love to see a 21st century reinterpretation where i i feel like you could keep the premise almost identical and you're just adjusting the frame so that the butt of the joke becomes like society and yeah. sort of like the need to put pat into a binary framework yes exactly like why are you all so obsessed with past gender what's going on do you right. not have do you have a job do you have somewhere to be? Do you be? have your own lives? To yeah. Live? <laughs> You're not somewhere like, to what be. Like, <laughs> why are we so... And, and in that, you get to sort of explore, I think, other people's relationship to their gender, too, right? Like, why why am I a man? And why do I ascribe these, these essential character traits to being a man? I think that's honestly one of the most radical things about Ted Lasso, right? People keep talking about the niceness of Ted Lasso, mm -hmm. but, like, mm -hmm. that's because we're seeing men be nice, and that's considered radical, you know, right. like to see, to see a man. He's not toxic? What's yes, wrong with exactly. him? Yes, exactly. And it's just like, oh my God, this is incredible. Who would have thought? And, you know, it's just like, men don't have to be toxic, you know? That's not something that they have to be. Um, so, yeah, I think that would be kind of a fun sort of exploration, a modern exploration.
That's a great answer. Um, this the last question is the hidden gem, which is uh, you know in the however plentiful this cabinet is of non-binary representations that we've had in culture, and it doesn't have to be fictional because sometimes you know the this it's too sparse. But um, is there uh, something you can recommend to people who kind of want to would like to enrich themselves with this theme? Uh, a hidden gem that you can recommend them to read, to watch, to check out? I'll say this. This isn't very specifically... Well, actually, there are two characters who I think are actually very good. So I'll mention both of them and then mention sort of a storyline. One show that I sort of got hooked on during the pandemic was Good Trouble, which is a follow-up to Freeform's The Fosters. There are two non-binary characters on that show. And I think... One thing that I really love about those representations, one's named Joey, the other is Lindsay. And I think the thing that I really, really love about these representations is that they come at the non-binary identity from two different angles. Lindsay very firmly knows who they are. Like, there's no question. As soon as they enter the narrative, they are non-binary. There is no question about it. Everybody else around adjusts. But Joey goes on this journey, this gender journey of sort of realizing what their gender is. And they do it with a partner. And what does that mean? And what does that look like? What does it mean for you to fall in love with someone and they fall in love with you under the assumption that you are one thing and you're actually the other? How does that change your dynamic? And I think it's actually a really interesting representation. I I don't think it's imperfect, but I think some of those, some of those flaws are intentional because it's about, it's not just about the non-binary character. It's also about how a cisgender character sort of responds to their partner. And I think those two were really, really interesting looks. There's also a storyline involving a character, Gael. He's a bisexual Latino man. Uh, cisgender man. Uh, his sister is trans. And I think this season, no, I know for a fact, I don't think, I know. This season, Gael finds out that he's a dad. And after having gone on this whole journey with his sister, he makes the conscious choice with his partner to not gender their baby. And what's really sort of interesting about this is I think that baby representation (laughs) has been on TV, has been a really interesting space because in animation and live action, I think about Malcolm in the Middle, there was a baby on Malcolm in the Middle that just like did not have like really a name or a gender for like multiple episodes, you know? And like, (laughs) and that's obviously, this is not an intentional non-binary representation, but you're, you're sort of existing. It just wasn't essential to have, for that baby to have a gender. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's like a baby. You know, (laughs) and honestly, I feel like Hollywood treats babies like props anyway. So, you know, it just it wasn't really like a thing that had to get sorted right away. But I think about this conversation because this is a conversation that I think people are beginning to have. Right. Do we as a parent tell our children who they are? What is that line? What does that look like? Uh, Particularly as someone who might not necessarily align with who their child is. 
You know, I think these are conversations that mixed race families have too, right? Like if you are a white mother and you have a black daughter, how do you talk to that child about who they are as a black person in America? That's a, that's a tricky thing, right? Um, and you can't really ascribe their race to them. You have to sort of like go to sources who are familiar with the way that your child is gonna navigate the world. And so I think that this storyline on Good Trouble about Gael sort of deciding that he's not going to decide for his baby is really relevant and also really refreshing. That, what an interesting, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't know, I've seen that discourse, that conversation starting to happen just sort of online and in the real world, but to, to see that actually written into a show is, um, is, is cool, right? That, that sort of, um, I think one of the reasons why those of us who work in this whole inclusion entertainment space, why we care about this is because there is a, um, a validation and an acknowledgement of sorts that, uh, such a thing exists and deserves to be talked about or heard when it's represented in entertainment and media. So, you know, things look like they are, um, I don't, I, I never want to get too optimistic on this show. <laughs> Things look like they suck a little less than they used to. And the more we talk about it, I think, uh, th the more we can promote the understanding. So, Abby, thank you for helping expand my understanding of this. I'm so glad we finally got to talk. It was very overdue. Yeah, absolutely. It was really enjoyable. Thank you again. Thank you. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Asia Kate Dillon plays the genius hedge fund executive Taylor Mason on Billions, whose fifth season returned on Showtime September 5th. Taylor is one of my all-time favorite TV characters. Brilliant, complex, surprising, and about as moral as you can get on a drama about the cat and mouse game between billionaire financiers and the megalomaniacal government lawyers who love to hate them. Taylor also is non-binary, and in a few minutes, you'll hear about how that character description helped Asia understand and articulate their own gender identity. Asia's other credits include John Wick 3, Parabellum, Origins the New Black, and the animated series Genlock. Asia, thank you so much for joining us today. I am obsessed with Billions and Taylor is, I always have a power ranking after every episode and Taylor has pretty consistently been like my number one character since, um, basically since Connerty and Wendy, like, like Connerty went to jail and Wendy kind of like became incredibly morally ambiguous. <laughs> so 
<laughs> but the whole show is kind of morally gray, which is what I like about it. Well, I agree. And thank you so much for having me, Rebecca. It's really nice to talk to you. I love how much you love the show. That's awesome. <laughs> I want to start by acknowledging that, you know, when it comes to uh, belonging to a marginalized or underrepresented identity, there's never an obligation to teach others. But I noticed when I was watching your various past interviews that you've been very gracious and very patient in answering questions about what it means to be non-binary. And even when I imagine sometimes the questions might grow repetitive or kind of basic. So I wanted to start by asking you, where are you currently at in terms of how you decide to spend your time or energy educating people? Well, I think when I'm engaging in a conversation with someone who has, um, who is really wanting to expand their own sense of what um, gender is and can be, and someone who is approaching that conversation with um, love and an open heart and with vulnerability, then I am totally happy to engage in a conversation with that person about um, my personal experience of my gender identity. And, you know, it's pretty clear to me when I'm engaging with people who aren't coming from that place, you know, who are trying to, um, well, who just aren't coming from a place of love or who aren't being genuine or, you know, and so, I think because it's generally, fortunately for me, pretty clear who's coming from where, I'm able actually to put my energy into a place that feels um, worth it, <laughs> um, where I'm getting something out of the exchange too, versus sort of, you know, talking to a brick wall that I know is really immovable. Does that make sense? Yeah. You. You. In other words, I think that there's a detector for like what's a bad faith versus a good faith like question. You know. Exactly. Yeah. Like you know, I think a good. Or an example of that is when I am misgendered. You know, if I'm misgendered by someone who has just learned my pronouns and, you know, they're obviously not doing it out of malice or, you know, um, to bully me, you know, there is room for growth and learning, of course. Um, but when someone is misgendering me, you know, repeatedly, even after I've reminded them of my pronouns, you know, and then it becomes, it becomes something else. And so it's pretty clear when that happens. Uh, it unfortunately is. And I think you can you can kind of sniff that. I mean, especially just being exposed to like online discourse, you can I think anybody who's online for a certain period of time then starts to have a detector for for that type of thing. So, you know, I read that, the, you know, that when you read the original character breakdown for Taylor Mason, you know, that specifically the description that the character was female non-binary, that helped you to put together some pieces for, for yourself. And so I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind kind of, I know you've told this story before, but talking a little bit about what was your framework for understanding yourself prior? And then also, how do you currently identify? Well, I identify as non-binary. My pronouns are they, them. I use non-binary um, to describe my gender identity because my gender identity falls outside the boxes of man or woman and because gender is a spectrum. The gender binary does not exist. It was created by colonists and imposed on the indigenous peoples of the so-called United States of America. And, you know, the sex, sex is not a binary either. And so it is both um, a means to identify how I feel, how I experience my gender, and also a way of illustrating that um, the sex and gender binaries are not real. 
Prior to encountering the character breakdown for Taylor, I had been experimenting with um, removing she, her pronouns from sort of online bio materials and just using my name. But frankly, the only trans people that I had been aware of uh, prior to encountering Taylor um, had undergone some sort of either medical or physical change, whether it was taking hormones or some kind of surgery so that they could live fully, you know, as themselves in their identity. And I personally had not felt, and I still don't feel, that um, hormones or surgery are a part of my journey. And so I had literally no example of a person who didn't identify as a man or a woman but hadn't changed their body. And so I just couldn't, I had no, I just had literally no example. But I also knew that she, her didn't feel right to me, but I also didn't know how to claim another set of pronouns if I wasn't changing my body because I had a sense of what they call sort of imposter syndrome. Like, how can I be this thing if people can't see it, if I'm not showing it in some way via a physical medical change? So when I encountered the character breakdown for Taylor, and it did say female non-binary, and I, I mean, of course, I've encountered the word female all my life, <laughs> and I had encountered the word non-binary before, but in that moment, I chose to look both of them up and encountered for the first time the, the clear explanation of non-binary as someone who identifies as neither a man or a woman, neither male or female, and then also female and male are an assigned sex at birth and that gender identity is placed on top of that assigned sex. And something happened where I, I had the experience where I finally was able to align, everything aligned for me. And I was able to step into an identity, my non-binary identity fully, and I would say publicly, I mean publicly step into that identity, knowing that my body is just my body and it doesn't signify anything other than it's my body and it doesn't dictate what my gender identity is. Um, does that make sense? It does. I, I, I'm remembering um, one of the earliest interviews you gave. I think it was on the Ellen show where you kind of delineated the difference between like the physiology of, of our bodies. And, and I think what you called your gender identity being what is between the ears, right? Something that is, that is more about, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, um, but I think it's more about a consciousness, it seems, rather than a biological expression. Yeah, well, for me, you know, I think that, you know, I was told my whole life that my body meant that I was a girl and a woman. So <laughs> I didn't know how to separate. I really couldn't conceive of how to separate my experience of myself versus what my what I was told I was supposed to be because of what my body looked like. And so just coming to an understanding that, as I said, like a body is a body and also, you know, male and female as biological sexes are so much more complicated even than just male and female. And so I identify as neither man or woman or male or female because those binaries aren't real. We are bodies, minds, consciousness. It's all much more nuanced and com complex and beautiful, you know, than, than we have been taught. And so um, 
I don't know if that answers your question. I, I think it does. And I think that what you're referencing is almost like, you know, we're, we're kind of like almost just hitting the tip of the iceberg of a what it was almost verging on a very metaphysical discussion about the separation between like body and soul and things like that. Things that we don't you know, our producer, Matt, is going to kill me if I do like a three hour conversation about metaphysics. But what I love is that, you know, Taylor, now that Taylor has been on the show for four seasons, is the representation of Taylor is awakening that kind of consciousness to an untold an innumerable number of people who get to watch billions. But the very first person that Taylor had an impact on was actually yourself, um, which, which I think is kind of beautiful. Yeah. I've said, I mean, I have certainly said that very phrase that I think whatever hope Taylor gave to other people, once Taylor appeared on screen, you know, Taylor gave me that hope and sense of self first, which is, I mean, I bet we're going to, this is a good segue into representation, frankly, but it's like, um, I, there was nobody like Taylor before Taylor. And so the first time that I saw myself reflected, my identity reflected was when Taylor came my way. And I think, you know, I have always felt non-binary, always. Before I had the language to, to conceive or communicate what that was to other people, I have always experienced myself that way. And it really feels synchronistic to me that Taylor came into my life at a time when I was really ready to say, I have to be brave, it's time to be brave. And, and if Taylor, if this fictional character can exist in this fictional world and have been brave enough to you know, get up and get dressed and go out there into the world and be who they really are, then, then I can too and it's, it's past time. And so here I fully am. Yeah. It's, an incredible example of, of <laughs> life imitating art. What kinds of conversations ha have you had with, you know, the showrunners, Brian Koppelman and David Levine, about both, you know, how they even came to creating, you know, Taylor, who, you know, quickly became a major character in the universe. So this is not a side character who just happens to be non-binary to check a box, you know? Um, and then what kinds of ongoing collaborations do you have with, with discussing this aspect of, of Taylor's character and their storylines? The, the aspect of gender identity specifically? If, yes, thank you. Specifically as it pertains to gender identity. Taylor has a lot of storylines and, um, and I love that most of them actually don't specifically, you know, they're not centered around their identity, but, you know, do you have input? Yes, I would say, you know, when I was, first cast as Taylor and I was talking to Brian and David about the character, you know, they told me that Taylor was going to be a major player in the show, you know, that Taylor was going to play a really important role. And frankly, that is one of the reasons that I really wanted to play the part. I mean, not only as an actor getting to play a character who is integral to the storyline, but um, a non-binary character who's integral to the storyline is extraordinarily important because then that character's story isn't just maybe one or two episode arc and you know, it's not about their gender identity. You get to see them as a, as a full human being. And then in terms of the ongoing conversation around Taylor's gender identity over the past four seasons, I would say there has been very little because that is just one part of what makes up who Taylor is. And because it is not the focal point of Taylor's storyline on the show, the things that I talk with Brian and David about are, you know, financial stuff, <laughs> you know, stuff that has to do with the financial world or like what Taylor knows or doesn't know about certain things with regard to the job. Um, and 
you know, and I've said this before, there, there were a handful of times, particularly season two, season three, and it will occasionally still happen, where there's, you know, some phraseology that comes out in a script or a certain word, and I say, well, you know, Taylor wouldn't say policeman, you know, they would say cop or what, you know, some gender neutral version of whatever the word is. And I feel really grateful that it's always felt like a very safe space to do that. I mean, I feel like I can talk with Brian and David about anything, ask them anything, they are available to me. And so that is very special. But yeah, we, we talk about mostly where Taylor is coming from emotionally and, you know, why they are the way they are and why they're trying to, why, why they are behaving the way they're behaving and doing what they're doing. <laughs> I will um, save some lucky Billions podcaster is going to get to grill you about all the specific moves that Taylor has made over. The, Taylor has moved around a lot um, across across the seasons, um, but you know, for for the purposes of this general podcast, I will have to restrain myself. Yes, um, no spoilers here. <laughs> I will give people a spoiler alert if I go into that. So, you know, to be honest, after Taylor was introduced, I was kind of bracing myself for some sort of subplot or at least like a plot point that was revolving around bigotry, you know, and, you know, the kind of very special episode type of trope. Um, and, and we really haven't really had much of that. I remember like Danny Strong's character, Todd Krakow, like making some snide, you know, remarks while, you know, he lost to you at the poker tournament. Um, but do you think it was significant that Taylor hasn't had a major plot line that's been centered around trauma or around bigotry or that type of experience? Yeah, I think it's essential. You know, we know that the re there is a reality in which trans, you know, non-binary, intersex, gender non-conforming people are the targets of hate, bigotry, violence discrimination, whether it's, you know, job discrimination, housing discrimination, you know, they have higher rates of bullying and suicide um, than any other marginalized group. And so, so it is important to have those stories, but growing up and up until honestly a few years ago, those were the only stories that existed. And so because, and this is a statistic that Laverne Cox uh, said in an interview a little while ago that eight, I think 85% of Americans say they've only encountered a trans, non-binary, gender non-conforming person through the media. Mm -hmm. And I would say you've encountered them in your real life, you just don't know it, but through the media. And so that's how the majority of Americans learn about, you know, the queer community. I'll just say the queer community at large, but particularly and specifically trans, non-binary, gender non-conforming people. And so we need all different kinds of stories. Um, and, and the problem up until now has been that there has been the majority of one kind of representation. And so, you know, for that not to be part of Taylor's story on the show to not have that special trope episode, it's like, thank goodness, we've, we've had enough of that. You know, the balance is too far on one side for now. What we need are visions of, you know, trans, non-binary, gender non-conforming people um, not only surviving, but thriving and being loved and having loved and being fully formed characters and human beings so that when viewers are watching, they can they can relate to us as full human beings and hopefully learn to love and care about those characters, which I know translates to love and care for trans, non-binary, gender non-conforming, intersex people in, in real life. And I know that because... It, that's been reflected to me by people who have 
reached out to me on social media or come up to me on the street and said, like, I, I mean, I've had people straight up admit to me, they were like, I was homophobic and transphobic, and I love Billions, and I love your character, and now I just wish the best for you, and I love you, and my heart and mind have been open. I mean, I know that sounds like it's made up, it sounds too good to be true, but I have the screenshots, I have the receipts. It's, <laughs> it's, um, it's really quite extraordinary. That's that's so moving to me to to hear. Um, that is extraordinary, and I think particularly um, on on a show like Billions, which, as I shared before we started recording, I came to with a lot of preconceived notions and prejudices about you know what a universe that is constructed of hedge fund traders and sort of wheeling and dealing politicians would you know w- would be like. It's kind of refreshing and I'll admit a little bit surprising. It was surprising to me that, you know, nobody in the billions universe has really, you know, struggled or had trouble respecting Taylor's uh, gender identity. I mean, we've had acts, you know, like very sort of matter of factly correct people's pronouns and, and things like that. And it's a little remarkable given that the characters are otherwise all kind of assholes. <laughs> Say that with a lot of affection. They're, they're like, sociopaths. To your knowledge, um, I'm just curious, like how have people told you like whether or not that's actually true to life of of the, the real life hedge fund world? And also, more importantly, what's the significance of having characters like the guys, the guys, it's mostly guys, the characters at Axe, Axe Capital be able to normalize uh, gender fluidity accepted, acceptance in this way? You know, there have been cases on the show where Taylor has been purposefully misgendered. Then it has, and it has revealed, it's been done to reveal something about the character who is misgendering Taylor versus, um, like when that happens, we're, we don't see Taylor being like cut down by that. It just reveals that the person who's doing it is horrible, <laughs> you know, and, and doing it purposefully to try and disrespect Taylor, which is so clear because the writing is brilliant in it and the actors who do that are brilliant. And so, um, I mean, I'm thinking of John Malkovich who, who misgenders Taylor as his mm. character. And it's mm-hmm. like, well, that, that makes sense, you know, in that context. I also think that, um, you know, in season two, we have Axe in that scene where Taylor introduces themselves and says, these are my pronouns, and Axe just says, okay. You know, and Mafi is the other person in that scene who we already know is sort of, you know, Taylor's yeah. BFF, very quick BFF, you know. <laughs> Protect Mafi. is purity. So we have Axe, we see Axe accepting Taylor in that moment and just moving on and being like, okay, on to business. And then there is Axe, I think, correcting Dollar Bill um, in a subsequent episode. And so, I think one of the incredible complexities that the show holds about this character of Bobby Axelrod is that, as you said, he's, you know, he's all the things. He's, you know, an asshole. He's vindictive. He's also a human being. Um, And so it is complex that he is able to also hold respect for this person who presumably is the first non-binary person who's ever met because he actually just sees Taylor as a tool that he can use to achieve his ultimate goal. And so Taylor's gender identity doesn't get in the way of his ultimate goal. And I think that that holds true for the entire Billions world, which is if if whatever's going on with you doesn't get in the way of you making money or you making someone else money, then it's it's not really actually a big deal. It is also great to see that, spoiler alert, when Taylor briefly kind of breaks away and sets up their own um, rival firm for a while, there was never a moment, I mean, like, 
Basically, Axe and Wag spent an entire season plotting how to take you down, but at no point did they entertain, like, weaponizing, you know, gender identity a- against you or anything like that. It was just, like, not a- not a thing, you know. Last season, we got to learn a little bit more about Taylor's past when Kevin Pollack recurred as your father. And, you know, again, as with all of the relationships on the show, the dynamic between the two characters was very complicated, very nuanced. Um, the Masons, and these are just like, this are like mild spoilers. The Masons. We won't go into, yeah, the Masons. The Ma- <laughs> it sounds so like hard. It sounds so the, like parochial, the Masons. It does, the Masons. Doug, Doug and Taylor. Doug and Taylor are, are somewhat estranged, but it's primarily because of just the clashing ambitions between these two incredibly brilliant, you know, people. But still, there were moments uh, throughout that arc where you, where I feel like viewers got a little sense of what Taylor's coming out was like for both father and child. I'm curious about whether you had any input in shaping that backstory, and would you be comfortable sharing whether or not any of it was informed or inspired by your own personal experience? Unless I am misremembering. I had nothing to do with the writing of that scene and I didn't, there was nothing, I mean I don't remember, what I remember is receiving that script and reading those scenes and crying and thinking this is exactly right on for Taylor for Taylor's father, it is exactly the kind of conversation that I believe that they would, it just rang so true for the characters and it um, and I thought it beautifully handled a father who is genuine, who genuinely loves his child, genuinely wants to be there and to learn and admitted within the scene that he's trying, <laughs> you know. And um, and of course you have Mafi there, sort of defending Taylor to their dad, which I thought was beautiful. It's a, all of it to me is a great example of like that's how it could go. If you if you have a kid who comes out as non-binary, like you, it is. You get to watch this father actively work from a place of love to learn to love his child again or in a new way or something. And you see Mafie defending Taylor, which is important for people to watch. I mean, I just, all of it to me, I knew would be incredibly impactful and and a teaching moment that didn't hit anyone over the head with like, this is the righteous way to be. I mean, it, because it rang true to the characters, you know? And I think that is a credit to the extraordinary writing we have on the show. Absolutely. I mean, I think, again, given the context of what the, the things that we've seen all of the characters do and what we know that they're capable of, I think it, I think those, those moments, um, they certainly hit me more, you know, when, when you see, when you see something like that. And, and that was a beautiful scene. And I really loved that arc. So now kind of going beyond Billions and talking a little bit more about your your whole career as well as the industry, I'm wondering in your experience and to your knowledge, how much opportunity is there out there for non-binary or gender fluid or gender queer actors to be able to also play non-binary characters? I mean, I have to be honest about the fact that I'm not, you know, I'm not a casting director and I'm not an agent and I'm not a manager, so I am not seeing scripts I'm not seeing scripts come across my desk, quote unquote, every day. So I I don't have, the honest answer is I don't know. I I don't know other than, um, how do I know? I'm like, what is my frame of reference? Or or just even what kinds, like since, you know, since Billions, is there a change in the types of things that you're reading for or? Um, You know, yes. (laughs) 
Yes, certainly. Um, I would say there are certainly more. There are certainly more non-binary characters um, being written, and there are more non-binary actors being cast in those roles. And I do, I know that just from you know like Instagram or reading you know or reading something on Variety or Deadline or The Hollywood Reporter. You know, it's that that's the way that I learn about that. I'm like, oh. This act, this person is starring in this thing. Like that's awesome, um, and it's been awesome to see that so far, peripherally, you know, they are integral characters to the storyline. You know, the story isn't about their gender identity necessarily. It's also been really incredible to see, you know, um, trans and non-binary people, particularly people of color. Uh, black and indigenous people, you know, having control of their own stories and being the ones who are writing them, directing them, producing them. That is certainly a change um, in the last couple of years. And more, the more of it, the better, you know, let's, let's keep going where there's still not enough. So let's keep going. Absolutely. Uh, with John Wick 3, you were able to get the director, Chad Stahelski, to agree to make your character, the adjudicator, canonically non-binary, you know, and I'm wondering, you know, even if, even if nothing in the script or the filming changes, what's the significance of, of a move like that? Well, thank you for asking about that. I, it's incredibly significant and it, the significance of it sits alongside something that is a, a bit difficult for me, which is the fact that According to GLAAD, they have this poll about whether or not there have been, you know, any trans or non-binary people in a major Hollywood film. And because the adjudicator, the character that I play, is never referred to as they, them, uh, which are the pronouns the adjudicator uses, and that's what the script was changed to reflect, that it doesn't count as representation because nobody watching the movie knows that. They just know that, you know, this person appears in makeup and feminine, atti feminine attire and um, a pronoun is never used. So why would anyone, um, why would anyone know that that person is non-binary? And so, and that's Glad's poll. And also people saw the movie and tweeted at me or messaged me and said, like, I can't believe there's a non-binary character in this movie. I mean, every every press release that came out about the movie where I was talking about it, I was very upfront about, like, this character is non-binary. It wasn't written that way. The studio and Chad Stahelski and Keanu, they loved it. They changed it, you know, because why not? It's significant. You know, the John Wick movies have always been very representative of all different kinds of people, whether it's, you know, ethnicity or sexual orientation. And so it just felt really right for the world to have gender diversity as well. Um, and and there is, there is a part of me that's like, gosh, I wish, uh, I know it's historic and significant and extraordinarily important and I'm really proud of it. I'm, and, and I, there is something about it that feels a little bit tainted by the fact that Glad doesn't qualify it as trans representation because I also just feel like it's also extraordinary to have a character who's never referred to by a pronoun. We, what is shown in the story is you don't know that person's gender and hopefully the lesson is don't assume. Don't assume someone's gender, actually. Just because someone is wearing makeup or dressed in, you know, historically feminine attire, whatever that means, you know, that doesn't mean you should assume that person's gender identity. And that, to me, is also historic and something I'm really proud of, so... Thanks for letting me. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. And and I think that 
that sort of, you know, even just what you shared is, is sort of emblematic of the fact that this, there is, there is an evolving understanding. And, and hopefully, like you said, in the future, if it, when it becomes more normalized, then the, the non-assumption will be normalized because I noticed that oftentimes the burden is is specifically on non-binary people to offer their pronouns, whereas for people who are who fall into that gen- gender binary neatly into that, they don't have to, you know. Yes, um, I mean, I think that you know, I mean, I encounter this, and it doesn't matter what room I was in specifically, but where we're going around and saying our names or what, you know, and I'm the only person that will offer my pronouns. And even if I'm not the last person in the proverbial circle to go, very rarely do other people follow suit. Um, And these aren't rooms, I mean, I think these are rooms with people who are somewhat familiar with gender identity, you know. or the concept of pronouns, or certainly when I use mine could be like, what did, what did that mean? Or what are you, you know, what, it, you know? Um, and so, yes, I'm just relating to the fact that, as you said, the burden is always on, or predominantly on non-binary or trans people, gender non-conforming people to say like, here's how I'm different instead of the burden or the, the joy actually uh, uh, on all of us getting to self-determine, be autonomous and have that respected. You know, everyone has a gender identity actually. And so, and I don't know what anyone's is until they tell me. Right, the invisibility of being part of the majority, right? Yes, um, ooh, yes. <laughs> I think I crypt that from uh, what, ah, which, there's some scholar who came, you know, the white, the invisibility of whiteness. So I'm, I'm, I'm adapting that, but um, you, I, I'm, I'm curious as an actor, as a performer, you know, do you have any preference towards playing characters whose gender identity matches your own? Um, you have played female characters in the past, such as Brandy on Orange is the New Black, and any concerns about whether or not that runs the risk of like reinforcing a gender binary? I will play whatever part I am the right actor for, you know, whatever that role is that speaks to me, if I'm the right actor for that role, that's that's what will happen. And if every character I played from, from now until I die on screen <laughs> um, or on the stage um, was non-binary, that would be awesome, you know? Um, that would mean that those characters are continuing to be written and that they are continuing to be integral to whatever story they're a part of, you know? But I'm not... There are certain roles, there are certain roles that I will never play because it's not right for me to play them. I will not play a character where it's essential that you have to see that person's body and that person was assigned male at birth um, and that person has not medically transitioned in any way, right? Like, I mean, I know I'm being really specific, but I think it's okay. Um, Like, that's not a part that I'm going to (laughs) play. And so, um, but someone who where you never see their body or the body is not um, representative in the story of a binary necessarily and or someone's gender identity is just man or woman or male or female. Um, again, it's it really is going to be specific to the story and the character. But if it's right for me, and then, then it'll be right. I hope that wasn't too rambling. I just think... No, it was, it was actually, I think it was incredibly thoughtful. And, and I I think that that's one of those things where when you, when you do have something that's like, when, when you are kind of putting so many, like, you know, describing it to, to that extent, I think it, it indicates that 
that you're really thinking about the intention of of why you're taking on something and and or, or why you're not. Before we get to our final two questions, I definitely wanted to make sure that we get to talking a little bit about your advocacy and the, the campaign to eliminate gendered award categories. You know, this is something that you've really been speaking about for for several years. Um, I guess for those who aren't already familiar with this argument, I almost want to save time and just tell them to Google it. <laughs> but 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 how about this? Because I know that your position has modified or evolved a little bit somewhat, you know, from 2017 and 2018, you received back-to-back nominations for Best Supporting Actor at Critics' Choice Awards. You submitted, you know, sort of the Emmys allowed you to submit in the Supporting Actor category. And, and that was something that you did at the time. Where are you right now in terms of how you feel about the, this whole situ- this whole issue? Yeah, thank you again for asking about it and letting me talk about it. Um, yeah, you know, in 2017, and again, if you Google this, I'm basically quoting, but that's okay. In 2017, when you know Showtime asked me how I wanted to be submitted for an Emmy actor or actress, I thought, well. I know that I use the word actor and always have because actor is a gender neutral word that has existed. It existed for at least a century before the word actress came into being. And so to me, actor, well, not historically, it's a non-gendered word and that's the word I've always used. But I needed to pose the question to the Emmy board, what actor and actress meant to them? Did it mean male or female? Did it mean man or woman? You know, and if, if it, if they were dividing people by sex or gender respectfully, why were they doing that? What does gender identity and or assigned sex at birth have to do with the way in which we are awarding art? (laughs) Um, And they came back and said, you know, there's never been any rule. Anyone can enter either category for any reason. And I thought, great, I can enter the actor category because the word actor is non-gendered and that works for me. And then, I can't, I mean, I don't know exactly when it happened, um, but I think probably last year, I'm not sure, I can't pinpoint it exactly, but I just, I really came to an understanding that um, the choice between actor and actress in the context of awards shows where those words only mean man, woman, male, female, gender, or assigned sex, asking non-binary or intersex or gender non-conforming people to choose between those categories is, is a false choice. And the categories existing within the context of the awards show, um, they are exclusionary and it is erasure of anyone who exists outside of, you know, the gender binary. And, and the male-female categories uphold the gender binary, which is ultimately extraordinarily dangerous for anyone who who identifies outside of it. And so, graciously, you know, I spoke to, I got to speak to NPR about it, and I'll just repeat something that I said there, which is like, okay, so then if Denzel Washington can enter as an actress, and Viola Davis can enter as an actor, then the Emmys themselves have have shown the categories to be absurd and archaic and ultimately meaningless. And, you know, I applaud the Gotham Awards for, you know, abolishing their gendered acting categories. And I really think it is only a matter of time and truly not that long until the Tonys, the Emmys and the Oscars um, follow suit. Yeah. 
just to set the scene for people, it's this isn't like a quixotic quest. Like you just said, the, the Gotham Awards just announced that they're abolishing it. The MTV Movie and TV Awards, you were the very first person in 2017 to present a gender new, neutral acting category. And I believe that both the Berlin and San Sebastian Film Festivals have gender neutral categories. So... This is it's realistic to think that we might see this someday with the totally. And, you know, again, it's it's about making space for everyone. You know, not everyone identifies within the binary. And if we are trying to, you know, award art that is representational of everyone, then we need to be representing every that we need to be representing everyone, you know, and abolishing gendered awards is one part of. Um, the change that needs to happen. You know, we also need to see more roles for women, uh, especially and particularly women of color, um, trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming and intersex people. We need to see roles written for them that are Emmy, Tony, and Oscar worthy. You know, it isn't just about abolishing the categories. It's about changing um, and evolving the material that is created, you know, within quote-unquote Hollywood. Precisely. I I think a lot of times the awards nowadays are, I mean, they are about acknowledging some superlative performances, but they're also, and just, um, you know, craft, but, um, but they're also like a litmus test to kind of just see like, how, how have we been doing in terms of like having enough, um, substantive parts for people who don't fit into that dominant identity. Um, so our last two questions uh, that I ask every podcast guest, I'm going to give them both to you because I've realized that people get really confused when I only ask the first one. So I'll give them both to you at the same time. The first question is the Hollywood remixed, which is, is there a depiction of a non-binary character in pop culture that you would order a do-over for and how? So this is more, this is generally, this is a setup to be like, is there something problematic you want to call out? But we don't have to put it that way. Hollywood remixed. And the, the second one is going to be the more positive spin, which is the hidden gem. Is there a work that you would recommend? So anyway, now you know what the two questions are, so you can think of. <laughs> well, yeah, look, I mean, frankly, if I'm allowed to, if I'm allowed to promote myself in the show. I would say if you haven't watched Billions, like watch Billions, you know, um, I'm incredibly proud of Taylor as a character. And, and so I, yeah, maybe Taylor is, I don't think of Taylor as a hidden gem, but maybe they are. Um, and then what representation would I change? Honestly, I feel like I don't have an answer for that because, um, I don't think there's anything that I can like that I would throw under the bus. I, nothing has come my way where I'm like, God, that feels really awful. And that may just be because I haven't seen it. <laughs> um, like someone might call it or write into your podcast and be like, well, you have to watch this because it exists and it's awful. And then I will. I'll be like, oh, God, that is pretty terrible. <laughs> That's okay. That's a message of that's a message of self care. Is what you're saying is you know don't expose yourself to problematic portrayals and and also it's probably just it's probably seldom been attempted to to be honest. I mean I think that there are more examples of sort of attempts at transgender portrayals and that sort of thing, but just historically. We haven't seen, I mean, you know, I combed through this in the first half of this podcast with um, with one of my colleagues um, who is non-binary and there's Yay! just like not a long history. Yeah, yeah, they're great. But okay, so you, so you actually just said, you actually just gave an example of a thing that came to my mind that I want to say, which is mm. that I think what I can think of as problematic is when non-binary characters are written, and I'm not saying I've seen evidence of this, but when non-binary characters are written without anyone consulting a non-binary person, 
um, whether it whether it be actors they are considering for the role, but frankly, it needs to happen before then. It needs to happen because there is a non-binary writer who's been brought in, a consultant, a producer. I mean, as you know, I'm preaching the choir, obviously. But the more diverse your writer's room is, your production team is, the more diverse your whole project is, um, the more accurate your representation will be, and the you will frankly eliminate the likelihood <laughs> that you have a non-binary character that I'm going to go, God, you really need to do that over because that was bad. If you see a non-binary character where the representation is just about their identity and or they die in some horrific manner and or they only have one episode, that that is evidence to me that there was no non-binary person involved in that project except the actor who was cast and perhaps in that instance, for whatever reason, that actor didn't have the agency um, to to influence ultimately what the story was. And look, like, actors need to act, actors need money. You know, I don't, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game. You know what I mean? And so I think if you want to avoid being the answer to a do-over question, expand your universe to, in to have it be more inclusive and look more like what the world actually looks like. You know what I mean? Yeah, that, and that's that's really a, that's a, such a universal maxim. And I was thinking that you know Taylor can be held up in many ways as a universal example of of that positive representation, not just for non-binary identity, but for for so many of the characters on Billions. I feel like the writers have done a great job of making them like authentically and organically the identity that they have, whether it's racial or gender or, or different ways. Um, but it's never the focus of, of like what their storyline or what their character is all about. Um, it's a masterful way of showing like, here's a multidimensional, incredibly complex, awesome character that I think many performers would kill to play. And, and guess what? This character is non-binary. Um, it's great. I love Taylor. Asia, thank you for letting me indulge my inner fan for for so long. This was such a pleasure. Billions season five is currently back and airing on Showtime on Sundays. Check it out. Thank you again. Thank you so much, Rebecca. That was a real pleasure. Thank you for your really thoughtful questions. Thank you for doing all the research you did before coming into this. I love that you work with a non-binary person. Um, it all, it, I felt really comfortable and safe this whole time and that oh. doesn't always happen. So thank you. That means a lot to me. Thank you very much. I, I'm definitely still learning. I'm. It's it's amazing how much uh, just, you know, while prepping for this episode, I was like, wow, it's really hard to decolonize your brain from the gender binary. Like, it's very, like, it's very difficult for me to dismantle it. I'll be honest. So it's it's worthwhile uh, practice, though. So thank, well, thank you, you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Asia Kate Dillon and THR Associate Editor Abby White for joining us on Hollywood Remix today. You can watch Asia on Billions, whose fifth season is airing now, Sundays at 9 p.m. on Showtime. Next week, we'll explore narratives about undocumented immigrants with Blue Bayou filmmaker and star Justin Chan. Please subscribe to Hollywood Remixed on the podcast platform of your choice so that you don't miss it. Lucky Land 
Chumbacasino.com. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.